Amen, amen. Hey, as you're sitting down, we're going to be in Esther chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, we have one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, we'd love for you to take that home with you. Uh, If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of the Bible. And then as we move through this, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Again, we are in Esther chapter 4, 1 through 17. It's good to be back with y'all. I'm thankful that you had an opportunity to hear uh, from Justin last week and be encouraged from the book of Hebrews and what it looks like to look towards Jesus in the midst of our running the race of life. And so I know you were encouraged and that was an impactful time as he opened the word with you. So it's been a couple of weeks since we were in the book of Esther, so let's just kind of reset our setting. Let's, let's catch up a little bit, uh, remind us, and then those who maybe weren't here, kind of set the scene for them. And so the book of Esther opens up, and we're introduced to this all-powerful or seemingly all-powerful king, uh, King Ahasuerus. And he is in the midst of throwing the party to end all parties. And so it's a party that runs for 187 days, at the end of which he calls for his wife to come and parade through there so everybody can look and say, she really is smoking hot. Well, she says no. She says no, and that kind of sets the whole thing uh, into motion. And so they put out this competition. They begin to search for a replacement wife and all these various things. And that's when Esther, the namesake of our story, is kind of caught up in this, and she's entered into this competition, entered into this competition, if she would be selected, she would be found to be the queen of Persia. And as uh, happenstance has it, as the providence of God moves it, she is selected. Now, as our story picks up here in chapter four, we are five years into their marriage and we're nine years into the book. So four chapters, we've covered nine years and they've been married uh, in wedded bliss or or, or some close uh, non-facsimile to that, for five years. And you'll remember that as chapter three went around, uh, Esther's adopted father, Mordecai, had kind of got sideways with this guy, Haman, who had been advanced by King Ahasuerus to the second most highest position in the entire empire. And he got sideways with him. And so as a result of that, Haman goes to the king and says, listen, listen, I want all Jews everywhere to die. I want all Jews everywhere to die. And so they send out this decree that's going to happen in 11 months that says, in 11 months, if you have Jewish neighbors, we're going to need you to kill them for us. You can have everything they have there. And, and, and in the midst of this, this completely devastating, insane decree, where do we find this king? How do we find him responding to the fact that he's just uh, not just sentenced a whole host of people to die, but he's made a whole host of other people to be future murderers, what we find is at the end of chapter 3, this king, he and Haman sit down to drink while the whole city of Susa is stirred up. Everybody is upset with this edict, this decree, except for the king and Haman. So chapter 4 shows us kind of the fallout of this and how all these things will work out. I remember growing up, uh, I had a brother who, and I still do, he's six years older than I am. He was always, in my mind, just this larger-than-life character. And occasionally, I employed him, I needed him for my protection because I got myself into some predicament or another. And, And what I began to see is that he wasn't always the most willing mediator. 
He wasn't always the most willing mediator. And so if I went to him and said, hey, listen, I made a whole host of people angry. I really need you to do me a solid. I need you to show up, flex some muscles, crack some heads, break some noses. Will you do that? He'd say, you got yourself into this mess. You get yourself out. I'm thinking, that's not very loving. What's wrong with you? But if I catch him in this moment, he wasn't really sure what was going on. He just saw somebody attacking me. He was always there uh, to be a mediator, to be this stand-in, and to keep me safe. And what we see within chapter 4 of the book of Esther is we desperately need a mediator. And God's people desperately need a mediator. As the chapter opens up, Mordecai has learned all that's going on. Look at verses 1 through 3. In chapter 4, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud, bitter cry. And he went up to the king's gate, for no one was allowed in the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting with weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So this is the picture we get. Mordecai receives the news that everybody who's Jewish is going to die in 11 months. And he, along with all of his kinsmen over the entirety of the empire, all the way from Pakistan to the northern part of Sudan, they are overcome with grief. Man, they are just broken. They're not quite sure what to do. And so they put on this uniform of mourning. They put on the clothing that communicates to everybody, I'm in complete and utter uh, despair. And so this is kind of what it looks like. It's this rapid costume change. And so this tearing open of the shirt, and then they put on uh, this outfit that would have been uh, goat hair likely. And then they scoop up ashes, and they put the ashes on top of their head. So if anybody were to walk by and say, uh, how are you doing? There would be no question to it, right? It would be this automatic uh, response. And so there's no sense of confusion. I don't know, like you having a bad day, you having a good day. Uh, They are bereft and they're dressed like it, right? And so they're dressed for the occasion. And this is what Mordecai is doing. He goes in the midst of the city, tears open his clothes, puts on the sackcloth and ashes, and just cries out with his bitter cry. And so there's no question for us the reality and the devastating nature of the decree that the king has sent out. All across the empire, thousands of people in all cities, all across the empire, crying out because they know that death is coming. If you're Jewish, you know that for you there's no escape. There's nowhere you can go to to outrun the reach of the empire of Persia. You know there's nothing you can do to disguise who you are. And so you know that for you, you have an 11-month a death sentence with no chance of reprieve. And so Mordecai's there and he's displaying these things. Well, the text tells us that you weren't allowed to go into the king's gate. Now, why is that important? You'll remember that, that Mordecai is kind of this lower level bureaucrat. He's this guy who works in the king's gate. He's engaged in commerce. He's uh, stamping for the sale of goods and services. And so this is kind of where he's supposed to be. But there's also this understanding that if you're dressed like this, if you're acting like this, you can't go into the king's gate. Well, you say, well, that seems like a silly rule. Why? Well, it it, it is a rule, and it is a little bit silly, but effectively it's this. The king doesn't want sad people around him, right? He doesn't want people uh, upsetting the happiest place on earth. He doesn't want people coming in there, you know, down in the mouth and, and, and just really wrangling with the intricacies of life. He only wants happy, shiny people in the kingdom. He wants to live in this make-believe reality that says nothing bad ever happens in Susa. Bad things only happen elsewhere. And so he has isolated himself and kept himself from being able to be impacted by bad things happening to others. And so there's no chance for Mordecai to go in there. 
Well, the text goes on and it lets us know that his adopted daughter, Esther, has heard that this is what he's doing. And so she, she heard her, her maidservants perhaps let her know that, that, look, Uncle Morty, he's out there, he's dressed like this, and she thinks, I got to do something about this. I got to fix it so he can come into the king's gate. I got to fix it so he can talk to me. I need to understand why. Look at what she says. In, in, uh, in verse 4, it says, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. So how is she going to fix this? Well, you might think that if you hadn't read the text, well, she's going to fix this by going in and she's going to, you know, come to understand the intricacies of the situation and, and propose a solution. But no, what she immediately moves to do is to address the fact, why is Uncle Mordecai so upset? Verse 5 says, she wants to learn from him what this was and why it was. So she gathers up and she sends in some clothes. Now, the text tells us when these clothes arrive, Mordecai looks at it and he says, listen, I can't wear those. And he sends the clothes back. So it leads us to ask the question of, of, of what exactly is his mourning all about? Well, his mourning is tied to the devastation approaching and coming for his people. And because that hasn't come to an end, because that isn't interrupted, he can't put on a happy face. It'd be like if you went to somebody who just received information that their spouse uh, had terminal cancer, and you're to say, hey, listen, could you just smile a little bit? You're really bringing me down. And so Mordecai looks through the clothes, and he says, my situation hasn't changed. Our plight hasn't changed. I cannot put on these clothes. And so he sends them back. And thus begins really what is almost the remainder of this chapter, this back and forth, this back and forth. Esther uh, begins to send out a eunuch from the king, this man who we come to know as Hathach. And so it says, Hathach goes back out and he inquires to Mordecai, verse 6, in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai begins to tell him exactly everything that's going on. Now, what is significant about this? One of the things we have come to realize in the midst of this is that Esther is so removed, so distant from the affairs of the average ordinary Jewish person that she has no idea that a decree has even been uh, issued. She has no understanding that, that, that anything significant could be wrong. Maybe Mordecai's just having a bad day, and so she's trying to figure out what's going on there. And so Mordecai begins to kind of spell it all out for Hathach to carry back to Esther. It says he told him, verse 7, all that had happened in the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. You remember it was this exorbitant amount of money, roughly two-thirds of the taxable income for the entire empire of Persia within any given year. This is how much money uh, Haman promised to pay to the king if just he would let him issue this decree that all the Jews be killed. And so Haman, Haman has done this, and Mordecai knows it. So Mordecai's giving her back all of these specific details. It says, verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and listen to this, and command her to go to the king, to beg his favor, and to plead with him on behalf of her people. There's something very specific Mordecai wants her to do. 
He doesn't just want to catch her up. He doesn't just want her to be informed, but he wants her to know that he's not blowing these things out of proportion. So he's giving very specific details. He's handing over the decree and he's commissioning Hathach. You need to go, you need to read these things to her. You need to make sure she understands this is, uh, these are dire circumstances that we find ourselves in. But she doesn't merely need to be informed. She needs to do something. She needs to do something. Now, through the course of the book so far, one of the things that that we know is that Mordecai has previously instructed Esther to conceal her Jewishness. When she first went into the harem, he said, listen, you need to hide the fact that you're Jewish from everybody. And in chapter 2 and verse 7, we know that her name is Hadassah and Esther, and he tells her, listen, only go by Esther. Don't let anyone know you're Jewish. So she's lived the entirety of these uh, five years married and a couple of years before that completely secular, completely removed from her Jewish roots and completely anonymous in the empire. But he's calling that off. Seven years Six to seven years, she's lived a secular life. Six to seven years, she's lived in complete and actual denial of her Jewishness, feigning that she's solely just a Persian citizen. But look what he says. I need you to go and beg his favor and plead with him. He's calling her to a radical investment to going and seeing the king, not just, hey, listen, if you happen to sit down at breakfast with old King Ahab, would you mind just kind of mentioning it? Hey, would you pass the eggs? Hey, listen, would you mind not killing all the Jewish people and, and, and the bacon as well? I can eat bacon. That's a kosher joke. <laughs> so he's not calling on her to dispassionately argue on behalf of the people. Look at what he says. He says, plead with them on behalf of her people. He's calling on her and asking her to identify with the threat coming to the Jewish people. He's calling on her to move out of the shadows. He's calling on her to abandon uh, being anonymous. He's calling on her to put herself in jeopardy. And Esther knows this. Now, Esther has been obedient radically to Mordecai over the course of her life and in the detailing of this book. But she's at this radical impasse because she knows the thing that he's asking her to do has this exacting toll on her life. And she's thinking, uh, perhaps, listen, maybe it is that Mordecai really doesn't understand how devastating it is. Maybe it's that Mordecai doesn't understand the reality of the predicament that he's asking me to walk in. So she calls the eunuch and she says, listen, go back and say this to Mordecai. All the king's servants, verse 11, And the people of the king's provinces, in essence, everybody everywhere, everyone always knows this. There's nobody that has uh, this a little bit foggy in their head. Everybody's perfectly clear on this. That if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, and make no mistake, this is exactly what he's asking her to do, there is but one law, to be put to death. To be put to death. If you interrupt the king, if you burst in, if you come in there and he's not expecting you and he's not called you, there is but one regulation, one law, you die. She wants to make sure he understands this. And the only exception to this is the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Your life 
hangs on the kindness of a megalomaniac. Your, kind, your life hangs on the balance of this guy when after he's uttered a decree to slaughter Jews empire-wide, after he's uttered a decree to make everybody in his land a potential murderer, after he's done this thing, his recourse is to sit and have a drink. He's completely immoved by the suffering of his people. And this is who she has to go in there with. Now, perhaps in your mind, you've seen some version of Esther, and, and you've kind of engendered these thoughts that, man, they are madly in love with one another. They're categorically uh, just kind of impossibly united in the providence of God, and their hearts are really strongly united to one another. Remember this. Remember this. And it, soon after, soon after their wedded bliss, soon after they're united, chapter 2 and verse 19 tells us, now when they virgins were gathered together for the second time. Ahasuerus didn't disband the harem. He continued to employ them. And as she comes in here, she wants Mordecai to understand, what you're calling me to do is futile. You want me to go and beg to him? You want me to go and trust in his grace? You want me to go and throw myself on his mercy? But you need to know something. I haven't even seen him for 30 days. Five years in, and, and for a 30-day stretch, she has not seen the king. She is not his wife. She is solely a figurehead. She is solely there to be arm candy to him, to wear the crown, and to make him look good. She is not the recipient of his love and his faithfulness and his care and his mercy. And she has no real reason to expect his grace and kindness would ever come to her. If she goes there, she has every reason to suspect that she would die. She's not just sewing this up and saying, this is a radical inconvenience to me. Couldn't you find something else? Couldn't you find someone else? She wants him to know, not only is it likely to end in my death, but it's also likely to be futile and to not change the predicament that we find ourselves in. So Mordecai hears this. He hears the plight of the situation, he hears her heart. He know, likely knows her tears. He knows that if she does this, she could die. And he responds. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He says, listen, regardless, you're going to die. Regardless, you're going to die. The truth will find you out. You refusing to go in and argue and to plead on behalf of the Jews is not a guarantee of your safety. It may be a delay of the inevitable, but you are going to face the same fate as all the other Jews. And then verse 14 has in it probably the most famous verse found in the book of Esther, the one that most people think about when they think about the book of Esther. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether, whether or not that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And we just see this dripping with God's providence. He says, listen, if you, are, if you keep silent at this time, listen, look at the certainty of Mordecai. This is curious. He says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. On the basis of what could Mordecai be so incredibly certain, 
so incredibly sure. And see, he's not saying that, on the, look, if you won't do it, we'll find someone else to fulfill this role. If you won't do it, we'll find someone better. We'll find someone closer. Maybe we'll change Haman's mind. Maybe we'll, we'll engage the king in a little bit of back and forth witty banter. Maybe somehow Mordecai instead is holding to the promise of what God had decreed to Abraham. In Genesis 12 and verse 3, God is commissioning Abram and he's sending him out. He's sending him out to be a blessing to make his name great so that he could be a blessing. In verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Mordecai is holding on to the faithful covenant promises of God. That God has a plan and a purpose for his people. And that purpose is that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. So God couldn't possibly let Ahasuerus have all of the Jews everywhere killed. It couldn't possibly work out that way and also have God be true and also have God's word stand. So he says, listen, if you don't do it, it's going to come from somewhere. But you and your father's house will perish. In essence, listen to me, Esther. If you refuse to be faithful in this moment, it is the same as uttering a curse on God's people. And if you utter a curse on God's people, then you will receive a curse as well. He wants her to see that something so much greater is at stake than one single person's life. Something so much greater is at stake than one person's life or one person's death. And he says, why don't you catch, catch an understanding of the providence of God and all the things he's done? that he led his people into captivity, that when everybody returned with the edict of Cyrus, that we stayed, and in our staying, his queen said no, and in his queen saying no, they entered into this ridiculous competition, and in this ridiculous competition for women all across the empire, a young Jewish girl was selected, and this young Jewish girl who was selected might not have the king's heart, but she has the crown, and having the crown, she has a life that she can lay on the line, and laying that life on the line maybe just maybe would spell the deliverance of God's people maybe for such a time as this God has you here powerless terrified and willing to die she's got to think Esther receives this message from him and she recalls the covenant faithfulness and the promise of God. And she says, listen, I can go in and die. I can stay and die. I can be faithful and perhaps I can die. And we see this radical role reversal where previously in the book, Esther has always been this person who is taking direction and, and being obedient. Finally, she's the person who's giving direction and requiring other people to be obedient. Verse 15, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Find everybody over the course of this city who is Jewish and hold a fast, a fast for what? On my behalf. Esther asked them, please, I need you to help me. I need you to intercede on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Now, we already know from the beginning of this chapter that people were fasting, but what Esther does is call them into this radical understanding, because most fasts at this time, you wouldn't fast from the rising of the sun to its setting, but you could eat when the sun wasn't up, so you could eat in the evening. But what she calls them to do is a completely uninterrupted 72 hours of not eating. This, this, this under, or rather, 
And so she's calling them into the midst of this, of, of not eating and of giving themselves to this fast for her benefit. She says, listen, my young women and I are going to do this as well. And then at the end of this time, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. I know I'm going to die. I know that I'm throwing my life into the hands of a megalomaniac who doesn't care anything for the deaths of thousands of people who dismissed his wife because she wouldn't satisfy him. She says, and then I'll go in and I'll break the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther gives herself to radical obedience and willingly submits herself to be a mediator for others. As we read through this, we have this understanding that there are a number of issues that are difficult for us to work out. One is, man, where in the world is God in this? Where in the world is God in this? It would make sense, wouldn't it, that when Mordecai receives the news, that he goes to the king gate, that he rends his garments and all these things, and what he cries out is, oh, Lord, where are you? Forgive your people, intercede for your people. Oh, Lord, where are you? But he doesn't. And so the question is rolling around in our mind is, where is God? How do we deal with his apparent absence? Christopher Ashe, a theologian and commentator, says, God is invisible and inaudible in the book of Esther for a reason. Not because he is absent, but because he is invisibly present. We see God's hand. We see God's hand in raising Esther for this time. We see God's hand in moving Esther from her parents to Mordecai. We see God's hand in keeping them there instead of having them return to the land with a decree of Cyrus, keeping them there. We see the providence of God in his hand mightily at work, even in the dismissal of a pagan queen, right? God has been so incredibly persistently moving in his providence, superintending the outcomes and the actions of these people, even pagan people, for his good, for his glory, and for the protection of his covenant people. But we look at our lives, and we look at our lives in the midst of our difficulties and our hardships and difficulties with our spouses, with our children, with our jobs, with our health, with the health of others, and often the question that rolls in our mind is, where is he? I don't see him, I feel alone. I don't have a sense of him, I feel forsaken. Where is God in the midst of these things? His word tells us in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6 that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And then Jesus, prior to his departure from the disciples, when they would see him no longer, right? So he's been there with them. He's been instructing them, see me do this, you do this now. See me engage this way, you engage this way now. Prior to his physical departure from them, he tells them, when I leave, the Holy Spirit's coming, and this is the role that he's going to fill. He says in verse 12 of chapter 16 in the Gospel of John, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears from me, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you, if you are a Christian. 
If you're a person who says, my life rests on the sufficiency of Christ's work, he died for my sins, that God raised him from death, and in that rising from the death, I am forgiven of my sins and united to him. If that is the testimony of your life, the testimony of your heart and of your mouth, if this is what you believe, then you are not alone. But although you feel forsaken, that although you feel empty, that even though as your friends and your family will leave you and desert you, there is one with you who will never abandon you. Our God is a good father, and he gives his spirit to take up residence in our hearts, and his spirit is daily, moment by moment, testifying of God's goodness bringing to mind his word and bringing it to bear on our hearts, our lives, and our experiences. You are never alone. Even though you can't see him, even though at moments you can't feel him, you're never truly alone. Many of us, as we read the book of Esther, we read it with this understanding that, that I, I want this moment where it is true of my life, that, that, that I'm just kind of on this grand stage of life, and then I have this understanding that this is what God designed me for, for such a time as this. And so you're living your life with an expectation of when is the big thing coming? When is the large stage coming? When is he going to call me to this? But the reality of most of our lives are not going to end on a large stage making a significant sacrifice. Many of us will have opportunities in, in living a life faithful to Jesus to lose popularity, to lose friendships, to lose jobs, to be alienated and to be an outcast. To live a life, as First Peter says, as a sojourner and an alien. This is what it is to live quiet faithfulness before the Lord. This is what it is to live in, in the life of a society that is increasingly secular, to live a particular kind of faith in Jesus that is vibrant, that is winsome but not apologetic, that loves the Lord and calls others to love him as well. This is a call for us not to live for the grand stages of life, but to live for Christ each day. Each day, every day when you wake up, you have an opportunity to say, today, Monday, the 3rd of February, I will die to self. I will live for Jesus. You have an opportunity each day to die to your selfishness, to die to your desire for comfort, to desire to die to this picture of your future that takes in no consideration for Jesus and for his kingdom. You have an opportunity for such a time as this, for this Sunday afternoon, to die for yourself and to live for Jesus. You have an opportunity. This is who God designed you to be not to make a lot of noise on a grand stage, but to live out faithfully in the trenches of life. Whether it be at L3, in the school, in the home, in your neighborhood, or in the marketplace, God wants you to be faithful in all these places he's sending you, in all these places he's commissioning you, and he will not fail. He will be glorified. But will you glorify him? We don't live for the big moments, but we want to be faithful in the small so that if in God's providence he has intended a monumental sacrifice for us, we will be ready. God prepares you for the large things of life by measuring your faithfulness in the small. Will you be faithful? Are you willing to be faithful in the small so that you might be counted to be faithful in the large? Friends, you and I need a mediator. 
Esther is this wonderful picture of a mediator, this person who is willing to put her life on the line for others. But Esther's call looks for us to see a mediator who's not weak like Esther. Esther is reluctant, powerless, and the mediation she brings is temporary and unstable. She wasn't able to step into the king and say, listen here, listen here, buddy. You wipe that smirk off your face, and I'm going to tell you a thing or two about how it's going to go down in the kingdom. Give me that scepter while I knock you upside the head with it, right? Esther happens in the 21st century. For sure, that's how it rolls out. But it's not. (laughs) Esther's reluctant. She doesn't want to go and die. Esther is powerless. She's already seen one queen dismissed, and she knows how this king treats women. And Esther, the relief that she brings is temporary. It'll live for as long as this fickle king keeps his mind set on it. And it's unstable. It will fail at some point. But in Jesus, we see a mediator who is willing. The Son of God willingly took on flesh surrendered himself, took the lowly form of a servant. He is willing. From eternity past, he's willing. As he saw it drawing near, he did not waver. He did not fail. He was always willing. And this Jesus is all-powerful, but chose to empty himself of power, to empty himself of his rights so that he might be able to serve as a mediator, He wasn't reluctant, he wasn't powerless, he was willing and all-powerful. And the redemption he brings in serving as a mediator is eternal and unshakable. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 speaks of Jesus in this way. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Do you not realize that you have broken God's law? Do you not realize that you have sinned against a holy God? You have violated his law and his character. And as such, this holy God, as he enters in your sentence, will sentence you to forever being separated from him, living eternity in hell, suffering the natural consequence of your sin. And we see the natural consequence of sin spelled out all over the earth. But this good God doesn't want you to have to suffer the consequence of your sin. So he sent his son Jesus to be this mediator, to take on your penalty, your punishment, my penalty, my punishment, and and to stand in for us. And he does this so that he might give himself, Jesus might give himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We need a mediator. We need someone to stand in for us. We are not the heroes of our stories, but there is a hero, and his name is Jesus. And he calls us to come and to receive the forgiveness that he has won for us when he surrendered himself by being a mediator between us and God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. I thank you for the picture of faithfulness we get in Esther. She was willing to surrender her life for men and women and children across the entirety of the Persian Empire. 
Thank you for that model. I thank you for her pointing us towards Jesus, the one who surrendered his life to save all men and women at all times, everywhere. All those who would call upon the name of Jesus. God, I pray that you would apply the truth of your word to our hearts, that we would find ourselves living in submission to you. God, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, that today that they would cry out for salvation, your spirit would stir in their hearts and call them to your son who lived, who died, and who you rose again. We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.